Okay, so because I just watched um, PV's Alberti lecture last night, this is um, Rudolf Wittkauer's uh, chapter in Architectural Principles in the Age of Humanism and the chapter's called Alberti's Approach to Antiquity in Architecture. Um, one, the column in Alberti's Theory and Practice. Alberti, in his 10 books on architecture, declares that the aesthetic appearance of a building consists of two elements, beauty and ornament. He defines beauty, as we have seen, as the, quote, the harmony and concord of all the parts achieved in such a manner that nothing could be added or taken away or altered except for the worse. Ornament is a kind of, quote, additional brightness and improvement to beauty. Beauty is something lovely, which is proper and innate and diffused throughout the whole, whilst ornament is something added and fastened on rather than proper and innate. Beauty is thus, according to Alberti, an harmony, a harmony inherent in the building, a harmony which, as he subsequently explains, does not result from personal fancy, fancy but from objective reasoning. Its chief characteristic is the classical idea of maintaining a uniform system of proportion throughout all parts of a building. And the key to correct proportion is Pythagoras' system of musical harmony. Ornament is the embellishment of the building in the widest sense of the word, ranging from the stones used for the walls to the candlesticks of the building, in the building. Alberti emphasises more than once that, quote, the principal ornament in all architecture certainly lies in the column. The column then takes up a prominent place in Alberti's aesthetic theory, and consequently, large portions of the whole work deal with it. By placing the column in the category of ornament, Alberti touches on one of the central problems of Renaissance architecture. Thinking in terms of the wall, the chief constituent of all Renaissance architecture, he sees the column first and foremost as decoration. Of course, Alberti imagined his theory to be in harmony with the spirit of classical architecture. He did not know Greek temples in which the column is the basic element of the building. Roman imperial architecture, his only guide, may be superficially described as halfway between the Greeks and the Renaissance. It is essentially a wall architecture, with all the compromises necessitated by the transformation of the Greek orders into decoration. But in many cases, it still retains the original functional meaning of the orders. The place assigned by Alberti to the column is implicitly contradicted by a passage in which he defines the column as, quote, a certain strengthened part of a wall carried up perpendicularly from the foundation to the top, and, quote, a row of columns is indeed nothing else but a wall, open and discontinued in several parts. He therefore sees in the column a remnant of a pierced wall, a conception diametrically opposed to that of Greek architecture, according to which the column always remained a self-contained sculptural unit. Alberti's definition of the column as part and parcel of the wall was based on Tuscan proto-Renaissance buildings of the 12th century, which in their turn took over the use of the column from late classical and Byzantine works. The Arcade of St. 
Miniato al Monte, can only be interpreted in this way. Solid wall appears above and between the arches so that the arcade itself is, in Alberti's words, really nothing else but, quote, a wall open and discontinued in several places. Buildings like San Miniato had a formative influence on Alberti and his definition, though a flagrant misinterpretation of the classical column is in line with the traditional Christian conception of all architecture as wall architecture. The column as ornament or as residue of wall, these are not Alberti's only incongruous statements on columns. Actually, in spite of what has been said so far, Alberti understood more about the classical meaning of the column than any other architect of the Quattrocento. Characteristically enough, he does not accept the arch supported by columns, one of the key motives introduced into Renaissance architecture by Brunelleschi and used ever since. In spite of his definition of the column as part of a wall, Alberti must have realised that there is a contradiction between the round column and the arch. The latter belongs actually to the wall of which it has been, as it were, cut out. It may be interpreted as a wall, quote, discontinued in several places. Thus Alberti demands, logically, the straight entablature above the column and declares that arches should be carried by, quote, columnae quadrangulae, i.e. pillars. In his buildings, Alberti consistently avoided the combination of arch and column. When he used columns, he did in fact give them a straight entablature, or when he used arches, they rest on pillars with or without half columns set against them as decoration. Alberti found the models for both forms in Roman architecture, but whereas the first motif motive is Greek, the Romans played the role of mediators, the second is Roman. The first motif is based on the functional meaning of the column, the second on the cohesion and unity of the wall. To explain this latter point, in the Colosseum, the pillars may be interpreted as residues of a pierced wall, with the half columns, which carry the straight entablature, placed against them as ornament. In practice, therefore, Alberti's conception of the column is essentially Greek while his conception of the arch is essentially Roman. In both points, he is followed by his great successors, Bramante and Palladio. But Alberti did not stop at this discrimination between the functions of arch and column. In the course of years, he discovered the inconsistencies inherent in any combination of column and wall. For a method methodical mind like his, the incompatibility between the three-dimensional and plastic quality of the column and the flat character of the wall must in due course have become evident. In his last period, he solved the theoretical contradictions by substituting pilasters for columns. The pilaster is the logical transformation of the column for the decoration of the wall. It may be defined as a flattened column, which has lost its three-dimensional and tactile value. The ten books on architecture were in the main finished about 1450, when he was 46 years old. He had only just started as an architectural practitioner. 
His earliest plans date from the mid-40s and his career extends over the next 25 years. In spite of his assertion in 1450 that columns are the main ornament in all architecture, he decorated his two last facades, San Sebastiano and San Andrea at Mantua, with a system of pilasters. But that does not then mean that Alberti had turned away from antiquity. It means rather that he had found a logical way of translating classical architecture into wall architecture proper without compromise. Alberti's adaptation of the elements of classical architecture to a consistent wall architecture take place in four clearly separable stages, the milestones of which are his four church facades, San Francesco in Rimini, Santa Maria Novella in Florence, San Sebastiano and San Andrea in Mantua, which will be studied in the following pages. Two, San Francesco at Rimini. Alberti's first ecclesiastical work was the exterior of San Francesco at Rimini, designed in 1450. The commission was given by Sigismondo Malatesta, Lord of Rimini, who wanted to turn San Francesco into a grand memorial for himself, his wife and the great men of his court. With a subtle understanding of his task, Alberti borrowed from Roman antiquity the motif of the triumphal arch and applied it to the facade. The big central arch leads into the church and under the smaller side arches, it was originally planned to place the sarcophagi of Sigismondo and his wife Isotta. With the closing of these niches, the special implication of Alberti's triumph over death idea has been lost, but something of it still survives at the side where the arches contain the sarcophagi of the Uomini Illustri. To bury people under arches in the walls of a church is actually a medieval conception. Examples are numerous and well known to Alberti and were well known to Alberti. The tombs planned for the facade and side of San Francesco derived from these medieval models, but by placing sarcophagi with long Roman inscriptions under serene Roman arches, Alberti has turned the medieval wall of graves into a pantheon for heroes. It is with this impression that one enters the building, but only to find with amazement that one is inside a Gothic church. It will later become evident why Alberti left the Gothic character of the interior almost untouched. Outside, he had a free hand. He built around the medieval church a shell-like structure, screening the old walls with his Roman arches. The whole exterior stands on a high base, which isolates it from its surroundings and gives the building a peculiar character of severity and detachment. We have seen that it was one of Alberti's theoretical demands that temples should be raised above the level of the common world. Quattrocento architects faced with the problem of the church facade were in a difficult position, for there was no classical system which would be readily adapted for this purpose. San Francesco is the first facade of the new style, which, with the grafting on of the triumphal arch motif, constitutes an attempt at a coherent and logical solution. 
From now on, the triumphal arch remained in use as one of the few ideas evolved for church facades. But Alberti's recourse to a classical system for a completely different purpose led to difficulties which, at this stage of his development, could only be solved by a compromise. As the triumphal arch has only one story, the crucial problem consisted, of course, in the connection and fusion of the two tiers of the facade. In other words, some means of extending a one-storied system into a two-storied system had to be found. The upper story was never finished, but it can be reconstructed in its main outlines from the Medal of Matteo de, de Pasti of 1415. The parts above the side bays which screen the roofing of the aisles were to have a segmental form, and the central part corresponding to the nave was to consist of a large niche with a tripartite window, arched at the top and framed by pilasters. This whole arrangement is based on traditional lines. Many late Gothic churches in Venice and the terraferma show similar solutions. The traditional character would have been still more emphasised by the florid late Gothic ornament, which is just visible above the central arch in the middle. Thus Alberti tried to solve the problem of the second story by taking refuge in a medieval system which was different in spirit from the classical main story. At this phase, he was satisfied with such a mixture of classical and late Gothic elements. A particular difficulty in coordinating lower and upper tiers was presented by the projecting entablature above each column which necessarily results from the connection of wall and column. Alberti borrowed this feature from the triumphal arch. A straight and unbroken entablature has a visual effect of a horizontal barrier, but a break in the entablature makes the projecting parts appear as vertical continuations of the columns. If this motif is used, the eye expects the vertical movement to run on into the upper story but here only the two middle columns are carried on into the pilasters above, while the outer columns are not so continued. Moreover, the middle columns are united by the arch in the second story, but separated from one another through the break in the centre of the base, whereas each middle column is bound to an outer column by a common base. This complicated rhythm, outer bays closed at the ground level but open and discontinued above, central bay open at ground level but continued and closed in the second storey, became through Alberti a typical feature of the 16th and century architecture and is so natural to us that we have grown unconscious of its complex character and of its genesis, namely the compromise necessitated by the direct application of a classical system to an unclassical structure. Faithful to his own theory, Alberti used columns as his main ornament, and in accordance with his demands, the columns carry a straight entablature and the arches rest on broad pillars. But the analysis has shown that the connection of the column with the wall led to difficulties which Alberti neither attempted nor was able to solve. On the other hand, pillar and arch belong to the same world of the wall. Nobody has ever expressed this more clearly than Alberti in the sides of San Francesco. 
Here he left the pillar and arch motif without the ornament of the column, which was reserved for the more privileged position on the facade. It is not impossible that he was led to this solution by the mere logic of his task. But no later architect has come nearer to the true spirit of Roman architecture as it is found, for instance, in the interior arcades of the Colosseum. Santa Maria Novella In Santa Maria Novella, Alberti's problem was similar to that which faced him in San Francesco. Here, too, a medieval church already existed, to which a facade had to be added. But the solution of San Francesco, the screening of the old building by, by an entirely new and independent front, was not possible as parts of the facade were standing and could not be destroyed. The Gothic tombs, the side doors under their pointed arches, as well as the big circular window in the centre, had all to be reconciled with Alberti's own ideas. Accordingly, most critics of the facade have admired the way in which Alberti, in spite of these handicaps, gave it the stamp of his new style. But to be quite frank, looking at the facade without prejudice, it does at first glance rather convey the impression of a medieval structure. And strangely enough, a good many students, and amongst them the most distinguished art historians, have taken it for granted that a part of Alberti's structure namely the flat arcades of the main story, belong to the medieval facade. This error is intelligible, for this is exactly the impression Alberti wanted to give. There can be no doubt that Alberti meant his facade to be a faithful continuation in idea and form of the existing parts of the building. Seen in this light, the facade appears as a peculiar historical paradox for this archaeological reconstruction, intended by its author to point back into the past, became the most important facade of the new style and in fact set the example, as is well known, for the common type of church facades in the centuries to follow. But now it must be emphasised that Alberti's facade is, of course, archaeologically inaccurate, for he continued in the style of the Florentine proto-Renaissance of the 12th century the Gothic parts of the building, which were left unfinished in about 1350. If any proof were needed to show that the blind arcades of the main story do not belong to the pre-Alberti facade, one could point to the fact that they would const constitute an impossible anachronism at the period when the Gothic parts were built. We can gather from Alberti's writings the ideas which animated him when he was faced with the problem of continuing the Gothic facade. Alberti aimed, as we have seen, at the harmony and concord of all the parts in a building. Quote, Continuitas universarum partium. This principle implies a correlation of qualitatively different parts. Alberti's finitio and consequently a careful reconciliation of old and new. Thus the logical pursuit of the classical concept of continuitus can lead us to unclassical results. This is no mere theory. While engaged on the construction of San Francesco, Alberti from Rome was in constant touch with Matteo de Pasti, the acting architect in Romini. In one of his letters, he instructs Matteo with the following words, quote, One wants to embellish what has been built, not to spoil what one has to build. 
the inference being that the mutual accord of old and new parts should never be left out of sight. Alberti's restrained modernization of the Gothic interior of San Francesco, a similar problem to the facade of San Maria Novella, is the perfect illustration of these words. The ideas which lay behind Alberti's scheme for Santa Maria Novella are thus unambiguous. He believed himself to be faithfully continuing the existing proportion of the facade, and as the Gothic arches of Santa Maria Novella had marble incrustation, a method of decoration which Tuscan Gothic had borrowed from the Proto-Renaissance, he seems to have felt justified in interpreting the whole facade in terms of the, quote, classical Proto-Renaissance, and not in those of the, quote, barbarous Gothic. In fact, the incrustation alone makes Alberti's facade a posthumous member of the 12th century family of Proto-Renaissance buildings. But more than that, the facade contains definite elements borrowed from San Miniato and from the Baptistry at Florence. The baptistry supplied some details, such as the blind arches with the pillars at the corners and certain forms of incrustation, as, for instance, the arches inside the arcades. And San Miniato was the model for the disposition of the facade in two stories, of which the upper one screens only the nave and is crowned by a pediment. But it is those touches which are at first sight almost unnoticeable and which are more difficult to define that give the facade its new, and it may now be said, revolutionary character. First, the novel element of the high attic between the lower and the upper tier should be mentioned. This helps to overcome some of the difficulties which remained unsolved in San Francesco at Romini. The inner pilasters of the upper story stand above the columns of the lower tier, but the outer pilasters have no corresponding members on which they can rest. The existence of the attic conceals this discrepancy, whereas in San Miniato, where the orders of the two stories are independent of each other, but where there is no attic, the discord is immediately apparent to a classically trained eye. The attic in Santa Maria Novella is at the same time effective as a horizontal barrier and neutralises the vertical tendency of the projecting entablature above the columns, the motive which had led to such difficulties in San Francesco. Moreover, the facade is now crowned by a classical pediment, just as the orders have classical entablatures and the difference in width between the upper and lower stories is bridged by the famous scrolls so that here, unlike San Miniato, the upper part links, links up completely with the lower. Above all, Alberti again used colossal columns to subdivide the main story, for at this period columns were still for him the chief ornament of all architecture. They give the facade a powerful rhythmic accentuation, and at the same time the two outer columns, by being boldly connected with pillars, define the limits of the whole structure. The two inner columns frame the most elaborate part of the facade, the entrance. Pilasters firmly adjoined to these columns enclose a niche just deep enough to accommodate two further pilasters at each side. 
The entablature above the pilasters goes right across the niche, and the back wall of which up to the entablature is completely filled by the door itself. And there's a footnote that says the door was executed by Giovanni di Bertino. The similarity of this entrance to that of San Francesco has, been of, has often been emphasised, but in San Francesco, the compactness and mathematical precision of Santa Maria Novella are still missing. There is a vagueness about all the details and a playfulness in the decorations, and above all, the door is floating, as it were, in the large space of the niche. The same difference of conception is apparent in all the other parts of the two buildings and manifests itself most clearly in the crowning of Santa Maria Novella by the austere classical pediment and of San Francesco by the lightly decorated arch. The date of the facade of Santa Maria Novella has often been a matter of discussion. Relying on documentary indications, some scholars date the beginning in 1448, others in 1456, whilst that according to the inscription in the upper, upper entablature, the facade was completed in 1470. Now other works by Alberti of about 1460 show an elaborate and calculated classicism, and there can be no doubt that the entrance to San Francesco, designed in 1450, is only the first step leading up to the fully developed classical composition displayed in that of Santa Maria Novella. The later date, 1456, must therefore be accepted for this facade. It is characteristic that for the entrance of Santa Maria Novella, Alberti followed closely the main features of a classical work, the entrance to the Pantheon. Here too there occurs the singular motif of the two pilasters placed at right angles to the doorway at each side of the deep niche. Here also we find the big door with the entablature and arch above. It is clear then that Alberti imbued his proto-Renaissance facade with motives directly derived from ancient buildings. This was for him consistent with his theory that the ideas of his predecessors should not only be followed, but also, if possible, improved upon. All the new elements introduced by Alberti in the facade, the columns, the pediment, the attic and the scrolls would remain isolated features were it not for that the all-pervading harmony which formed the basis and background of his whole theory. Harmony, the essence of beauty, consists, as we have seen, in the relationship of the parts to each other and to the whole, and in fact, a single system of proportion permeates the facade and the place and size of every single part and detail is fixed and defined by it. Proportions recommended by Alberti are the simple relations of 1 to 1, 1 to 2, 1 to 3, 2 to 3, 3 to 4, etc., which are the elements of musical harmony and which Alberti found in classical buildings. The diameter of the Pantheon for existence correspond ex corresponds exactly to, to its height. Half its di diameter corresponds to the height of the substructure as well as to that of the dome and so forth. Such simple ratios were used by Alberti. The whole facade of Santa Maria Novella can be exactly circumscribed by a square. A square of half the side 
of the large square defines the relationship of the two stories. The main story can be divided into two such squares, while one encloses the upper story. In other words, the whole building is related to its main parts in the proportion of one to two, which is the musical term, in musical terms, an octave, and this proportion is repeated in the ratio of the width of the upper story to that of the lower story. The same ratio of one to two recurs in the subunits of the single stories. The central bay of the upper story in the subunits of sorry, the central bay of the upper story forms a perfect square, the sides of which are equal to half the width of the whole story. Two squares of this, that same size encase the pediment and upper entablature, which together are thus exactly as high as the story under them. Half the side of this square corresponds to the width of the upper side base and is also equal to the height of the attic. The same unit defines the proportions of the entrance bay. The height of the entrance bay is one and a half times its width, so that the relation of width to height here is two to three. Finally, the dark square incrustations of the attic are one-third the height of the attic, and these squares are related to the diameter of the columns as two to one. Thus, the whole facade is geometrically built up of progressive duplication, or alternatively, a progressive halving of ratios. It is clear then that Alberti's theoretical demand that the same proportion be kept throughout the building has here been fulfilled. It is the rigid application of this conception of harmony which marks the unmedieval character of this pseudo-proto-Renaissance facade and which makes it the first great Renaissance exponent of classical eurythmia. In the next two church facades, San Sebastiano and San Andrea a Mantua, the complete absence of columns signifies a decisive turning point in Alberti's ideas. It may be recalled that in about 1450, Alberti considered the column to be the main ornament of architecture and that at that time the noblest building, the temple or church, was for him inconceivable without the noblest form of decoration. And indeed, he acted accordingly in San Francesco and San Maria Novella. The repudiation of the column in San Sebastiano and San Andrea must therefore have been preceded by a change in Alberti's theory. He must have found that he had to decide between the authority of classical architecture and the contemporary demands of a logical wall architecture. As a result, the compromise of linking together wall and column, the compromise of many a Renaissance architect, was rejected and a uniform wall system evolved. Nevertheless, classical architecture remained as ever Alberti's ideal. Behind the facades of San Sebastiano and San Andrea lies the classical temple front with columns, entablature and pediment. But the wall of the cellar has protruded, as it were, into the order which, appropriately to the character of the wall, has been changed from columns to pilasters. Occasionally, the Romans themselves had made the same adaptation of the Greek temple front, though probably not before the 2nd century AD and never in temples. 
The tomb of Ania Regilla in the Vale Caffarella near Rome, dating from the second half of the second century AD, is an example which was certainly known to Alberti. In San Sebastiano, as well as in San Andrea, the facade is placed in front of a vestibule, and in both facades, the main proportions are identical. As in San Maria Novella, Maria Novella, their width corresponds to their height from the level of the entrance to the apex of the pediment, so that they can be enclosed in a square, a proportion of one-to-one -one favoured by Alberti. But only up to this point does the conception of the two facades coincide. In other respects, they are planned on different and even opposite lines. First of all, San Sebastiano shows as much solid wall as possible, San Andrea as little as possible. Here, apart from the enormous central arch, the side bays open into doors, niches and windows, one above the other. In San Sebastiano, an unusually heavy entablature rests on unusually thin pilasters. In San Andrea, the relation has been reversed. Finally, in San Sebastiano, the central bay is astonishingly narrow and the side bays astonishingly large. Again, in San Andrea, this relation has been reversed. So much for the first impression produced by, produced by the comparison of these facades. It is clear that they represent two alternative schemes for reviving the classical temple front, both adapted to the needs of wall architecture. On further investigation, these facades present innumerable problems. San Sebastiano is the earlier structure and will therefore be discussed first. The building, foreshadowing the Greek cross structures of the Renaissance, was begun in 1460 and after a quick start progressed comparatively slowly. In 1470, the vestibule had not yet been finished. By good fortune, a letter of this year has been preserved in which Lodovico Gonzaga, who had commissioned the building, wrote to Luca Fancelli, the architect in charge, saying that he agreed to Alberti's proposal to reduce the number of pilasters on the portico. As pilasters appear only on its facade and not its interior, it must have been here that the reduction was made. There existed, therefore, a project for the facade which was followed from 1460 to 70, when Alberti proposed to alter it by the omission of pilasters. Lodovico Gonzaga's letters provides the clue for the reconstruction of the 1460 scheme. The width of the wall in the large outer base <clears throat> of the present facade corresponds exactly to twice the width of the central bay plus one pilaster. In other words, a pilaster set up in the middle of each outer bay divides it into two equal bays, the size of the central bay. The pilaster first fits exactly into the space between the arched and the adjacent rectangular opening. The result then is an equally spaced distribution of six pilasters over the plane of the facade. This should be regarded as a salient feature of Alberti's design of 1460. But a further problem is presented by the substructure. Plate 17a shows the facade as it appears today after the restoration of 1925. 
Three central arches now give access to a crypt, which extends underneath the whole of the church. Two outer arches are hidden behind the modern staircases. Before 1925, all five arches were visible, their bases below the ground level and walled up. Before the modern restoration, the only access to the church was a staircase to the left of the facade, which leads under a small quattrocento loggia to one end of the vestibule. The idea of attaching such a staircase, unrelated to the scheme of the building, is as incompatible with Alberti's style as are the stylistic details of the loggia itself. This staircase, therefore, can neither belong to Alberti's project of 1460 nor to the new scheme of 1470. The modern reconstruction, however, must also be incorrect, for under the new flights of stairs is the complete structure of the old arcades. But now it must be asked whether these arcades belong to Alberti's original scheme. This appears to be impossible. The pilasters of the facade proper are much broader than those of the substructure beneath them. To place a high and broad order above a lower and narrower one is utterly opposed to the views held by Alberti. The history of the building helps to solve this problem. The facade as it existed before 1925 was not finished until long after Alberti's death. In a letter written in 1478, that was six years after Alberti had died, Luca Fancelli expressed his satisfaction with the stone which was being used for the vestibule. In 1478, Lodovico Gonzaga had died and his son Federico eventually abandoned the completion of San Sebastiano. We still hear in May 1479 that the same Fancelli had happily finished the difficult task of placing the two sections of the big entablature in position. After this, there is almost complete silence for the next 20 years. In 1499, the little-known architect Pellegrino Ardizzoni, Ardizzoni was entrusted with the completion of the building. Evidently without knowledge of Alberti's plans, Arduzoni finished the church to the best of his poor ability. The open arcades of the substructure must be due to him, as well as the staircase on the left, for these features are supplementary. He must also have been responsible for the heavy frame of the central door, which partly covers the adjoining pilasters. Careless and without imagination, he here copied exactly the frame of the central door, which leads through the vestibule into the church. Also due to him, it seems, a minor detail, such as the straight top of the window in the central bay, which should probably have been arched in correspondence with windows in sim similar positions in other arms of the Greek cross. It can now be said that the modern arrangement fulfills neither Ardizoni's plans, with whose arcades it interferes, nor Alberti's project, for we have no evidence that he planned arcades in the substructure. Where then did Alberti plan his staircase? It is tempting to conjecture that he planned a large staircase leading up to the level of the vestibule and extending across the whole width of the facade. In this way, 
only in this way only can one make sense of the five doors which in the absence of such a staircase had to be changed into balconies. The assumption that one wide staircase was originally planned is above all to be derived from Alberti's own ideas. Churches, Alberti says, ought to stand on a high base. San Francesco at Rimini was a special case. Here he had to cut into his base in the centre, for the level of the entrance was determined by that of the Gothic interior. But in principle, the quote antique manner of entering a building is by a large staircase of the type familiar from classical temple fronts. Alberti himself devised such a staircase for San Andrea began in 1472, and his conception is reflected in some church facades, mainly in Rome, built by minor architects who in this and other respects are dependent on him. The precedent's the precedent for all these staircases was, it can now be suggested, Alberti's project for San Sebastiano. As a result of all these deductions, a tentative reconstruction of Alberti's scheme of 1460 may be undertaken. His project represented a proper temple front, with due allowance, of course, for its projection on one single wall plane. There is still one element which seems to disturb the classical harmony, namely the break in the entablature and the connection of its two halves by an arch in the pediment. There existed any number of combinations of the straight entablature with the arch and Brunelleschi had introduced the motive into Renaissance architecture in his Capella Pazzi following such pseudo-classical medieval works as the facades of the cathedral of Civita or Civita Castellana near Rome. But Alberti's use of it in a severe temple front cannot depend on such prototypes. The motive occurs frequently in Hellenistic, Hellenistic temples and tombs in Asia Minor. Although the idea is very tempting, it cannot be assumed that Alberti had any knowledge of these faraway places. The only building that could have influenced him is a monument well known to artists of the Quattrocento, namely the Arch at Orange, the side fronts of which show the same arrangement. This Hellenistic motive gives the facade of 1460 a vitality which is in contrast to its otherwise austere character. It indicates still unobtrusively the beginning of a state of fermentation out of which a new approach to classical architecture developed. The first record of this change is Alberti's proposal in 1470 to alter his project of 1460 for San Sebastiano. By omitting two of the six pilasters, the importance of the wall was emphasised and the dogmatic application of the classical temple front to his wall structure abandoned. It is this development towards a consciously unorthodox interpretation of classical architecture which marks the latest phase of Alberti's art. Next to the revised facade of San Sebastiano San Andrea, designed in the same year of 1470 and begun in 1472, illustrates Alberti's new approach to classical architecture. Behind the facade of San Andrea lies not only the idea of the temple front, but also that of the triumphal arch. 
The model followed here was not the type with three passages used for San Francesco, but that of the Arch of Titus in Rome or the Trajan at Ancona, with only one large passage and two small bays at the sides. In some of these triumphal arches, the moulding on which the central arch arch rests is carried on across the smaller bays and continued as it were behind the big order. This motif was repeated by Alberti and it reinforces the impression produced by the pilasters themselves which beyond belong to the triumphal arch as well as to the temple front that these two classical systems overlap and merge into one another. Alberti has here fused two systems incompatible in antiquity. Their combination in a new unity is unclassical and paves the way for the mannerist conception of architecture during the 16th century. The interrelation of the two systems is very subtle. The mouldings and denticulation of the big entablature are repeated in the small one and the form of the capitals of the outer pilasters, which is not identical with that of the inner ones, is reflected in the capitals of the small order. It is now necessary to discuss for a moment the interior, insofar as it has a bearing on the façade. The basic motif of the big vaulted hall of the nave with the three chapels opening on each side, the whole a complete and revolutionary novelty, derives from impressions collected in Roman Thermae or the Basilica of Constantine. But the walls of this Roman hall are decorated in a very un-Roman manner. For here the system of the façade is repeated as a continuous sequence. Without the crowning pediment, it now appears as a rhythmic alternation of narrow walls and large openings in the proportion of three to four. This motif, which has been termed the, quote, rhythmish travée, became one of the greatest importance, as is well known after Bramante had made use of it in his Vatican buildings. In repeating the same system inside and outside, Alberti was giving visual evidence of the homogeneity of his wall structure, but such an approach was inconceivable in antiquity. It has always been noted with surprise that the façade of San Andrea is considerably lower than the roof of the church. Alberti had to take into account the old tower in the left-hand corner of his building. It forced him to make his vestibule narrower than the church. This in itself need not have prevented him from covering the whole height of the church by, the two, by a two-storied façade but he wanted to emphasise the continuity of inside and outside and went so far as to make external and internal measurements tally. The height of the façade without the pediment corresponds to that of the wall of the nave up to the vaulting and its width to that of the, quote, rhythmish trave inside. Moreover, Alberti, just side note, that Corb didn't invent that, Moreover, Alberti preferred to let the bare wall of the church appear above his façade rather than sacrifice the colossal temple front. To do him justice, it should be mentioned that all the photographs of the façade have been taken from a high point and that the wall cannot be seen from the piazza in front of the church.
The Changes in Alberti's Interpretation of Classical Architecture. The facades discussed here, San Francesco, Santa Maria Novella, San Sebastiano, first and second scheme, and San Andrea, illustrate a development which is a consequence of the changes in Alberti's approach to antiquity. In the first facade, San Francesco, a classical system had been applied to a structure which is full of problematical elements, traditional features, and Gothic reminiscences. In addition, the classical detail reveals a bias for romantic and fantastic forms which can best be illustrated by a glance at one of the capitals. Antiquity is the authority which guided the architect, but his approach is emotional rather than orthodox. The next facades, Santa Maria Novella and the first scheme for San Sebastiano, represent a change to an expurged classicism as a result of a more purist attitude towards antiquity, which is also apparent in the detail. But San Francesco and Santa Maria Novella are connected insofar as they show the compromise of wall and column, a compromise which was abandoned in San Sebastiano. Here the compliance with the authority of classical motives was replaced by their interpretation in terms of a consistent wall architecture. And in the second scheme of San Sebastiano, and still more in San Andrea, the purest approach to classical architecture gave way to the deliberate and free combination of its elements. In the relatively short period of 20 years, Alberti passed through the whole range of classical revivals possible during the Renaissance. He developed from an emotional to an archaeological outlook. Next, he subordinated classical authority to the logic of the wall structure. And finally, he repudiated archaeology and objectivity and used classical architecture as a storehouse which supplied him with the motifs for a free and subjective planning of wall architecture. Alberti is perhaps the only architect who progressed through all these stages, one following another in logical evolution.